Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. To continue with our Good Money Week coverage, today's guest discusses value investing and sustainability. Hello, I'm James Yardley, and today I'm joined by Will Locke, the manager of the RM Global Sustainable Opportunities Fund. Will, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, James. Now, uh, Will, your fund is quite interesting. It's a it's a new fund. I think it launched uh, just in July 2022. Um, so it's probably one which our listeners are not very familiar with. Um, so can you give us a, a quick introduction to it? Yeah, sure. So um, the fund, uh, the R&M Global Sustainability Fund, uh, is a multi-cap, multi-sector, benchmark agnostic sustainable equity strategy, and it has a value tilt. Um, which we think is a bit of a differentiator. Uh, It's a high conviction portfolio, so um, around 50 holdings at any time, which we uh, build via um, fundamental bottom-up research, so going company by company uh, with our research efforts. Um, And we use a a proprietary uh, quantitative tool for idea generation. Um, So the key features, I would say, for the fund, um, when you're thinking about it, are um, strong quality characteristics, so things like high returns on capital overall, attractive valuations on measures such as uh, free cash flow yield, and a skew um, to smaller companies throughout. Now, that skew can change um, uh, from, from time to time in terms of how, uh, how large it is, but you know we will always have more of a skew to smaller companies than the, the benchmark. From a sustainability point of view, um, look, we're kind of looking generally um, at, at companies which have, uh, which might have improving characteristics uh, in terms of their sustainability credentials, or those companies which are enabling um, others to improve theirs. And then the final point I would say, um, you know, which is really important uh, angle for, for for us is around engagement. So engaging with companies to either support positive change where it's already happening or to accelerate that change where it's necessary. And so we'll have around a third of the fund um, at any one time where we're doing direct engagement with the the companies, setting them um, uh, goals and targets to deliver against. Well, it's certainly unusual um, to have a a sustainable fund with a value bias. Um, So that's certainly something interesting and new. Um, So can you tell us a bit more about your sustainable potential value and timing and how the process works? Sure. So our investment approach, um, you know, I would say we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, And I think what, you know, what you pick up on there is interesting and something that I alluded to at the start, which is that um, for for several years, this concept of value investing and sustainability have, have kind of appeared at odds with each other, not really comfortable bedfellows. And I'll view just very quickly before we get into um, R&M's own um, investment approach is that that, you know, that idea rests on defining those two concepts of value investing and sustainability very, in very narrow terms. Uh, And so we're not actually um, sure that that's helpful. I, you know, you don't um, just choose uh, stocks which are undervalued because they're low price to book. That's just one measure of doing it, for example. And similarly, on the sustainability side, um, just excluding companies which have high emissions, for example, is not necessarily going to deliver you um, good sustainability outcomes. So we try and you know define things a little bit um, more broadly. We have four defining principles behind our approach. Um, so the first one is that we're looking to own companies 
with very clear drivers um, for future shareholder value creation. We think there are three phases of a company's life cycle uh, where that can be delivered, uh, growth, quality, and recovery. And the drivers of successful value creation um, will differ depending on that on that phase. So in you know, the growth phase, uh, you want your companies to be reinvesting heavily. If they're in a recovery phase of the, the life cycle, actually to deliver value, you want them probably to be cutting costs um, or to be doing things like selling non-core assets. So not really uh, reinvesting, it's kind of the opposite. Um, so that's potential. Uh, we want to identify mispricings. So the second point, we want to identify mispricings between the current stock market valuation uh, and the long-term fair value that we determine. Um, we think that increases the probability of, of generating attractive returns from, from, you know, if we're right about finding companies um, with, with the value creation opportunities. And it manage, manages our downside, really importantly, it manages our downside uh, if we're wrong about those things, which does uh, happen, um, you know, uh, more than most managers would care to admit. So that's the valuation side. Um, the third defining aspect of our uh, of our approach is that we think you can use um, some behavioural factors. You take those behavioural factors into account uh, in determining the best time to buy and sell. So you might think that something's uh, cheap uh, cheap relative to fair value, but is it the best time to buy it, or could it get cheaper? And, that, and, and you know, in effect, we're just trying to minimize uh, the risk of buying too early or actually at the other end, leaving too much on the table. So we want to consider catalysts that will basically make other um, market participants, other investors reassess the value of the business. So that's timing. And into all of this, um, the fourth key principle is that we integrate the analysis of material risks and opportunities uh, relating to sustainability. So in simple terms, you know, what are we doing here? We're just saying, um, you know, how does sustainability um, uh, impact the business fundamentals and the valuation? Is it a headwind for the business? Is it a tailwind for the business? And if it's a headwind today, is it one that could shift over time uh, and therefore create a re-rating, you know, an upwards movement in the valuation because those um, sustainability characteristics have uh, have improved, and we kind of we look at that um, sustainability lens. We look at that through through three pillars. So we say um, you've got people, innovation, and environment. Those are the three um, key pillars you should uh, should think about. People represents the stakeholders, um, so the suppliers, the customers, the employees, um, and and also the governance of the business. Innovation covers. Um, R and D, but also business model adaptability, and then I guess in environment would be would be quite um, self-explanatory. And the the importance that we place on those different pillars will differ um, depending on the business model that we're looking at. So if you think about a software business, um, you'll probably place more in, uh, influence on the people and the innovation than maybe the environment. And if you were looking at an energy or a materials business, it would be the other way around. You know, you'd be definitely thinking about um, uh, the environmental factors. You'd be thinking about things like uh, health and safety for employees. So we think this just overall allows us to take quite a holistic view um, and, and is about proper integration into, <clears throat> into the investment case. So it's not about the tail wagging the dog. We're not only thinking about the sustainability characteristics of the business. We're not only thinking about uh, whether something's got a very low valuation or not. And do you have any exclusions in your approach at all? And do you ever come across conflicts between sustainability and profitability? We do operate exclusions, um, probably lighter ones than uh, the many um, uh, 
sustainable investing funds. So we exclude uh, tobacco, for example. Uh, we exclude um, certain activities uh, within fossil fuels like um, uh, oil sands. We exclude thermal coal exposure. Uh, and we exclude companies which um, fail um, uh, the UN Global Compact um, uh, uh, measures. So we do have exclusions, um, uh, but we prefer, you know, philosophically, we prefer not, uh, to have a wider net and to kind of then assess businesses uh, on their on, on their merit. Um, uh, and, you know, that probably enables us to kind of look at um, a wider set of opportunities in terms of those companies which can improve their their outcomes. And we think that that actually delivers um, a more significant real world impact for, for our investors. Um, and you wrote, re- and you wrote recently uh, that you're taking more contrarian positions at the moment, um, and you're particularly excited about global, global smaller companies. Is this still the case? Yeah, it certainly is. Um, so at the moment, we have around thirty percent of uh, of the fund invested in companies which are below ten billion dollar uh, in market cap, and that would compare to around six percent. Um, in the in the main global benchmark, the MSCI equity, um, you know what we what that reflects is going company by company and just the opportunities that we find. Um, I, I mentioned at the top that we will typically have a skew um, towards smaller companies relative to the to the benchmark. Uh, that you know that will be a, a common feature for the fund, um, but we are at uh, the maximum that probably I've ever managed at the moment in terms of accessing that. And I think if you were to put it into, you know, if to zoom out to 30,000 feet and try and describe what the opportunity is, um, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, global smaller companies have typically traded at a 20 to 25% premium uh, on a price-to-earnings basis versus the, the headline MSCI equity. At the moment, they trade at a five to ten percent discount. So that's over two standard deviations below the long-term average, and we think that just reflects uh, for for us opportunity. Um, it embeds a lot of concern about the outlook, which perhaps you are not getting uh, in in some of the large caps. So we're just trying to say really that the risk reward in small caps uh, is really attractive. It's a global feature, so you're not having to take huge regional bets with that. Uh, with, with that smaller company's exposure, it's multi-sector. So again, you're not having to take huge um, sector bets to to achieve it. And it's also um, in terms of the type of opportunities we can access. It's both quali- quality compounding franchise uh, franchises, but also turnaround. So we just really like the the breadth of the opportunity. Uh, and Japan is another big feature of the fund. I think it represents more than ten percent of your holdings. Um, it's no secret that Japanese equities are back in vogue. Um, and do you see this continuing? Yeah, the performance of Japan uh, has been one of the, the tailwinds for us this year. So um, we've been invested quite heavily in Japan for the last two or three years and been doing uh, a lot of engagement there. So writing letters to boards, uh, eventually getting. Um, meetings with those board members and putting our case to them about 
certain improvements that we felt could be made around things like capital efficiency, so very cash-heavy balance sheets or um, ownership of uh, cross-shareholding, so owning the equity of other companies, uh, but also things like the governance structures, so a number of uh, diversity of boards, uh, both from a nationality perspective, but also gender. And all these things actually have really come to a head uh, this year, um, where, you know, for, for those who aren't kind of seasoned Japan observers, effectively the Tokyo Stock Exchange came out earlier this year and said uh, that you know, really it's a bit of a joke that, I'm paraphrasing, but they kind of said it's a bit of a joke that so many Japanese companies <coughs> trade at such low valuations, so over 50% of uh, the topics at the time was trading below uh, one times book. And they said, if you've consistently traded below book value, you need to demonstrate um, uh, strategies which will improve your capital efficiency, improve your profitability, and drive your valuation towards one times books. So it's a very explicit, um, uh, a very explicit kind of diktat from the top. And at the same time, uh, within Japan, there have also been changes uh, in terms of um, uh, what's being mandated for things like board structure. So, you know, having uh, uh, female representation on boards. And this is causing, you know, a, a really big shift uh, in Japanese corporate culture. So a colleague of mine was out there uh, in May this year for a, for a conference and met a number of companies. And this is front and center in terms of presentations. There's a big shift in terms of uh, what's being said, but very importantly, there's a big shift in terms of what's being done. And um, we would kind of call out things like um, the proxy advisors, so ISS and Glass-Lewis, who help um, institutional investors around their voting. They've really shifted their terms. So getting people to vote against boards who are not enacting uh, some of these things is a big change. Uh, and similarly, um, we're seeing a number of companies announce big sell downs of their of their equity holdings and then do buybacks or special dividends um, to reward their shareholders for their patients. And in the last few days, for example, you've seen um, ISIN, which is quite a small company, which might go below the radar, but as part of the Toyota group, saying that they're going to sell their um, shareholdings down to zero. And if you understand kind of how important um, that for the Toyota group, all these cross shareholdings have been for one of the, the subsidiaries to come out and say they're selling down to zero is really quite meaningful. So we're seeing all these kind of anecdotal changes, uh, which add up to quite a lot uh, in, in, in aggregate. And it has a lot of runway um, because, you know, this is basically, you know, decades in the making and it's not going to just correct itself overnight. And there's still deep undervaluation in Japan. So, you know, again, a little bit like what I was saying about small caps, we just like the breadth of opportunity in Japan. Um, and there, you know, there are several things around the, the economy which are kind of interesting, but I think we're, we're most focused on the stock specific stuff. And one of your Japanese holdings is Nikon, um, which most of our listeners will be familiar with. Um, what's the story there? And um, do you have a sustainable strategy in place for that name? So Nikon, as you mentioned, most um, UK listeners would uh, be familiar with the cameras and you know, that technology, the imaging technology uh, is kind of core to the group, but they have other divisions as well. So they're involved in uh, equipment for the semiconductor industry, uh, which 
you know, most people at the moment would say has a decent uh, long-term uh, growth trajectory supported by things like uh, AI over time, uh, and also into healthcare imagery. So it has these um, kind of uh, core bits of the business. Uh, why do we like it? We like it because uh, it has a management team that's really grasped the opportunity in terms of some restructuring efforts. So improving profitability. We talked, I spoke about the recovery opportunity, uh, recovery stage of the life cycle uh, earlier. Well, that is what um, Nikon is. So they've been consistently improving profitability across the business. Um, they do have those longer term growth uh, opportunities. It's very cheap. So it trades below its book value. Uh, it has a lot of cash on the balance sheet and a number of share, um, cross shareholdings, and it is committed to uh, reducing those by buying back shares. So kind of these are all big ticks in the box um, uh, for us. Um, and it has to be said that those items were not always there. So those are things which we engaged with the company on um, uh, maybe one to two years ago, and then they put in place uh, subsequently. And then the, you know, the other aspect you asked about, the kind of sustainability characteristics of the business. You know, aside from you know, the, the kind of end markets that they're involved in, in terms of things like healthcare, uh, in terms of the semicons and all the kind of um, derivative uh, benefits that you get from a sustainability point, point of view from that. Um, for, for these guys specifically, uh, they are, um, I would say, sort of among the, the, the better companies in Japan on, on a lot of this stuff. So they've had a, um, a, a science-based net zero target in place since 2019. Um, they've moved towards 50% board independence over the last couple of years. They've been adding female board representation. These are other things, you know, th those are also things which we have been consistently engaging with them on. Uh, and then the final point is around compensation. Um, so, you know, we think the compensation is a really important driver of, of change in behavior. Uh, and uh, at our kind of behest and that, that of other investors, they put in place a range of new uh, compensation structures, which include return on capital targets and also a broad set of um, sustainability related KPIs, which kind of give them a, a really nice rounded approach to, uh, to how the, the management team get compensated. And Baker Hughes is one of your largest holdings. I believe they're an oil service company. Um, so what makes the investment case so strong there and, and why is that appropriate in a sustainable fund? Yeah, so I, th I think that um, Baker Hughes would definitely call you out uh, quite, quite early on um, with that description of them as a company, uh, as an oil services company. <clears throat> uh, they would very much describe themselves as an energy services company and we would agree with them. Uh, it's one of the big shifts um, for the business which uh, we think is you know not yet fully reflected in 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 the valuation. Uh, it is probably still perceived you know with with that um, uh, with that kind of oil lens, if you like. Um, there are three parts to uh, Baker Hughes's business, uh, each of which we think has attractions. Uh, the first part is traditional hydrocarbon, so oil and gas um, services. Um, we would view this as um, very much uh, in a recovery stage, um, generating a very attractive free cash flow 
which can be fed into the other two parts of the business, which I'll describe in a second. Um, for us, you know, one of the key things that we have to think about when when we're, we're thinking about these traditional hydrocarbon businesses is: Are you like Baker Hughes, an enabler of improvement? And if you are, you are potentially um, uh, creating a really big positive impact. So if you think about um, uh, traditional hydrocarbons, actually a big area of emissions are things like um, flaring uh, and methane leaks. Baker Hughes has uh, the technology which it supports um, reductions in those. Okay, And if you look at uh, net, you know, what we need to do to deliver net zero, actually around 40% um, of the reductions come from efficiency solutions of the sort of which Baker Hughes sells. So a really important um, service that they're providing there. The second division uh, is uh, operating in LNG and they uh, Baker Hughes provide very sophisticated, very efficient turbines, uh, which go into the LNG supply chain. Uh, Again, if you think about um, efficiency, you know, the more efficient the turbine, uh, the less the emissions. Gas, we think, uh, is a natural gas, we think is, you know, the most important uh, transition fuel. So um, although in the, the West, we might be trying to move ourselves off it, actually, the big growth is probably uh, in Asia, where you're moving from coal to gas. Uh, and, and again, kind of significantly reducing the emissions profile of those economies by doing so. Baker Hughes as a business there is super attractive because around half of the revenues come from services. So over the next um, decade or so, you have very um, strong growth in installation of new LNG. Uh, and then Baker Hughes will be able to harvest that revenue over a long period of time. And that is, you know, that is a very attractive high multiple business when you look around uh, the rest of the market to get those sort of repeatable service revenues. And then the final part of um, Baker Hughes' business, that third strand that I spoke about, is that um, by being part of the traditional oil and gas um, supply chain, that has actually um, given them really amazing um, market positions in things like carbon capture, in hydrogen, uh, and in uh, areas of industrial technology, such as um, you know, efficient asset management um, uh, monitoring tools. And so that's the, if you like, that's the long-term uh, opportunity for these guys is that you uh, balance out the declines in the hydrocarbon business by these new technologies, uh, these new energies. Uh, and then you have this really attractive repeating revenue business from, uh, from LNG uh, in the middle. Well, thank you very much, Will. Um, that's given us a really good feel for the portfolio, and you're certainly doing something different. Um, a lot of sustainable funds have really struggled over the last couple of years. Um, you're off to a very strong start, and um, I'm sure we'll catch up again in the future. So um, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, James, uh, and hope uh, the Good Money Week goes uh, well and uh, everyone enjoys the, the, the content that's being produced. The RM Global Sustainable Opportunities Fund is a multi cap, multi sector, benchmark agnostic sustainable equity strategy with a value tilt. It maintains a high conviction portfolio of around 50 holdings. To learn more about the RM Global Sustainable Opportunities Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. 
The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibers research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibers research team only.